I always loved that song. I grew up uh, in a small town, Nebraska, where I went to a Lutheran grade school. And uh, every class used to sing periodically. So first and second grade would sing, and then third and fourth grade. The thing I remember is we were never allowed to just have a hymnal open and sing it. We had to memorize every song that we ever sang in church on Sunday. And that's pretty daunting. But this one I love, and I especially picked this one out today, not only because I love this particular song, because it fits in with the new message series we're starting today, which is called Faith with Boots On. And today we're going to be asking the question, uh, who's your Isaac? What is it that you're holding on to that maybe you ought to release? Now, certain Bible stories uh, need no introduction at all. Uh, They're so well known that people that that don't even go to church or have never been to church have probably heard of. Uh, They probably never read the Bible, but still they know these stories. For example... Uh, Everybody probably knows the story of Adam and Eve, or you know the story about Noah and the ark, or Moses parting the Red Sea, or Charlton Heston, if you can't put Moses in that picture, Uh, or uh, Joshua, uh, fit the battle of Jericho. Uh, David and Goliath is another story that almost everybody knows. Uh, Daniel and the lion's den. But I want to suggest to you there's one more story that we should never, ever forget, and we should plug it into whatever list you already know, and that is the story of Abraham and his son Isaac. Now, this is such a compelling story that it's no wonder that in Hebrews, in the New Testament, Hebrews 11, verses 17 to 19, the author shows us three pretty amazing aspects of the life of Abraham who had to illustrate his faith in perhaps one of the most amazing ways. So today we're going to take a deep dive kind of into the Old Testament and into the New Testament. We're going to go back and forth between Hebrews back into the book of Genesis as we look at this story. Now let's start here with aspect number one. And this is Abraham's test. And the test is described there in Hebrews 11.17. It says, By faith... Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. I can kind of remember that story when I was a little kid that I thought that was the weirdest thing I ever thought. That God would ask somebody to kill his one and only son. As I say, so in reading this story, we face several problems. One of them is the issue of God's character. I mean, how could how could a loving God ask Abraham to sacrifice his only son? And the only answer that I can come up with over many years of doing this is that you and I are hardly in the position uh, to criticize God on any grounds whatsoever. But there's also a second problem in this story. Uh, that is more or less related to the first because we all kind of feel the problem of God asking Abraham to sacrifice his son. There's an unconscious tendency to kind of read this story backwards. We kind of like to jump to the end uh, because if we jump to the end, we see that it ends up that Abraham did not kill his son. And so what do we do? We say, well, see, God never wanted Isaac to uh, die in the first place. Now, that statement is kind of true on one level, but we risk 
missing the meaning of this as we kind of go too far down the road here. I mean, whatever else we might say, um, it's unquestionably true that God did ask Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. So let's jump to Genesis, the story back in Genesis chapter 22. It tells us what's at stake here. I think these words are up there for you. It says, sometimes later, God tested Abraham. He said, Abraham, here I am, Abraham replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Now, I've got to tell you that when I first heard this story in grade school, I thought they shouldn't be teaching stories like this to little kids because someday God is going to call my grandma and grandpa and say, you know, you're one and only grandson whom you love with all your heart. Why don't you take him to some big hill outside of Stabler's, Nebraska and sacrifice him? But it's interesting. It would have been enough if God would have just said, take your son. But he kind of magnifies that statement a lot. He says, take your only son. Now, some people would say, uh, but hold it, didn't he have another boy by the name of Ishmael? Yeah, but that was not from what God had in designed. He says, take your only son, Isaac. This is the son that Abraham and Sarah had been praying for for 25 years. Take Isaac, your son, and then he adds, whom you love. Which might seem as if God were mocking him, but these words were meant to reassure him that God knew exactly what he was asking Abraham to give up. And by saying it this way, Abraham would know that God understood what it would cost him to obey. And this is where the faith with boots comes in on. I mean, what is your Isaac? What have you been hanging on to that God might say, you ought to release that. You ought to release that. So let's be clear what God is doing here. He wants Abraham to travel with him with his son to Mount Moriah, which, by the way, is modern-day Jerusalem. And he wants him to build a stone altar on one of the mountains. And then he's supposed to make a platform out of wood. Uh, Then he's supposed to get Isaac to actually lay down on that wood. And then he would take this knife and he would come down and he would slit Isaac's throat the way you would slit the throat of a lamb on that altar. And finally, he would light the, the wood, burning his son's body as an offering to God. That's how the story should go. Now, this is what God told Abraham to do. And at this point, the man of faith has two options. Either you obey or you don't obey. If you stop to argue, if you try to talk God out of it, if you offer an alternative plan, all of that, I would say, equals disobedience. So that's aspect number one. Let's take a look at aspect number two. Here's Abraham's trust. You see it in verse 18. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I mean, think about that. You're going to kill the person that I promised that your offspring will have all these other people come behind you. See, at this point, I think the writer wants us to think about what was at stake. See, we naturally kind of focus on, you know, the unimaginable sorrow of what it would be to lose a child. And to any parent, that alone would be, I guess we would call an unspeakable tragedy, to lose a child. See, nothing in all the world seems more unreal than for parents to have to bury their children. We've been with our family all week. 
my son, my daughter, my grandson, it would seem to me unimaginable to have to bury them before they would bury mom and dad or grandma and grandpa. See, the death of a child is like a period before the end of a sentence. But in this case, God told Abraham to offer his own son, and Abraham was fully prepared to do so, at least it appears, because if we jump back to Hebrews 11:7, it says Abraham actually offered his son as a sacrifice, meaning that he and his son, that when he laid his son on the altar and raised the knife, he was fully intending to put his son to death. Now, naturally... Uh, Our minds kind of focus on that, but the writer wants us to think of something else here. See, God had already promised Abraham the head of a great nation. He'd be the head of a great nation, and he was going to bring a blessing onto this world. You can read about that back in Genesis 12. And he said that I will make sure we have these generations because they're going to be born out of Isaac's descendants. But see, that would not happen if Isaac, who was probably a teenage boy at this time, was dead. So we're kind of faced again with what seems to be an enormous contradiction. God commanded him to offer up his son Isaac. God promised to bring forth offspring through Isaac. If one of those happens, the other one ain't going to happen. See, the promise and the command seem to contradict themselves here in this story. If Abraham obeys the command... Doesn't that cancel God's promise about offspring through Isaac because Isaac will be dead? If he disobeys the command, what happens to the promise? See, the amazing character of Abraham's faith. This is this Abraham. He's our first example of having faith with boots on. He didn't know how God would do it. He just knew that God would do it somehow. Now, herein lies, a, I think, a really big lesson for all of us. And as I've prepared these messages on faith with boots on, uh, I really find myself preaching to myself. Because I've been questioning myself as I've been going through this message and all this stuff for the last, last week or two. What am I holding on to that I ought to have a looser grip on? And then I have to remind myself when I get myself a dope slap, what am I holding on to that I should just plain simple let go, not hold on less tight? But see, when God makes a promise, it's kind of foolishness or disbelief to to wonder how he will keep his word. But see, faith doesn't deal with how God will keep his word. Faith believes and leaves the how in the hands of God. Let God determine how this is going to take place. See, if we spend too much time uh, trying to figure out the how, uh, God will take care of us. Uh, you know, we're likely uh, to try to talk ourselves out of it. Now, as you ponder this story, remember that Abraham has no idea whatsoever about what's about to happen when he and Isaac start on this three-day journey to Jerusalem where he's supposed to offer his own son. Now, there are times in life, in fact, many times, uh, when our only job is to take the next step. Welcome, by the way. Take the next step. Our only job is to do that. We aren't called to figure out the big picture to explain where those steps are going to lead us. Now, God says, go and we'll go. Uh, Nancy and I can tell you any number of stories where uh, God said something to us that didn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. Like living very comfortable in Decatur, Illinois, and God says, 
maybe you ought to be uh, in Hong Kong teaching. And I think re- almost realistic, we were gone within four or five months. It was that quick. Or having a, a, a nice job working for uh, running a newspaper in uh, South Elgin and your husband being the athletic, athletic director and basketball coach in St. Charles, Illinois. And uh, we come home and say, maybe I should be going to the seminary. <laughs> and you're going to let go of some things because you feel God is saying, no, this is where I want you to be. See, God says go, and we go. God says stop, we stop. He says, give me your dearest possession. And we kind of wonder, can I do that? And he says, no, let it go. This is the true life of faith. That's faith with boots on. Now, here's aspect number three. It's Abraham's triumph. And here again, we're going to go back to verse 19 in Hebrews Abraham reasoned that God would raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. See, in that verse, we learn something that's only hinted about in Genesis 22. Twice in that chapter, uh, Abraham intimates that he expects that somehow, some way, God is going to work things out so that Isaac will ultimately live. Now, when he saw Mount Moriah, when he saw where current-day Jerusalem is in the distance, he gives this instruction to his servants. This is in Genesis 22.5. He said, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. You get the we in there? We will come back to you. Not I will come back to you, but we will come back to you. So Abraham literally believed that he and his son would return somehow. Then, as the two of them walked along, I remember when I first heard this story, this is going to be one of the most frightening questions in the Bible. They're walking along to perform a sacrifice, and Isaac turns to his daddy and says, Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Uh, That just gives me willies when I think about that story again. Then Abraham's reply has become kind of a synonym, if you will, for speaking faith into a hopeless situation because he says in verse 8, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Don't worry about it. God's got this handled. He will provide what you need at the time. And the writer of Hebrews tells us why Abraham could talk like that. See, he just he believes that somehow God could raise somebody from the dead. He just didn't know how this was going to happen. And he'd never, ever seen it happen before. See, he reasoned from what he knew about God and what he knew about the situation. And the only thing he could come up with was, I'm going to put my own son to death, and then somehow, some way, God is going to raise him from the dead. Now, that's pretty fantastic when you think about it, because up to this point in history, no one had ever risen from the dead. It's a couple thousand years later until it happens when Jesus rises from the dead. Now, it turns out, though, he was partly right here. See, God can raise the dead. It's a fact that's been proved at that empty tomb in Jerusalem. We celebrated Easter a couple of months back. That part was 100% correct. But he was wrong about Isaac dying that day. 
See, he didn't literally die because at the very last second when that knife was in the air, Abraham saw what? He saw a ram caught by his horns in the thicket. A ram that was placed there by God. And he offered the ram in the place of his son. So, figuratively, he did get Isaac back from the dead. And now we can kind of stand back and see the story here a little bit more clearly. Did God ask Abraham to, to sacrifice Isaac? Yes, he did. Was it a legitimate request? Yes, it was. Did Abraham know in advance how the story would end? No. Did he know about the ram in the thicket? No. So what was it that Abraham knew? That'd be a great song to write. What Abraham knew. Maybe there's a song by that title. What did Abraham know? Well, he knew what God had asked him to do, and he also knew what God had promised to give him a son through whom he'd bless the world. That's what he knew. And what he didn't know was how God was going to do this. He didn't know how to reconcile this promise to bless the world through Isaac and his command to offer Isaac up as a sacrifice. So at this point in the story, we see Abraham's faith at its highest and best. So even though that command to take your son, your only son Isaac, by the way, the one I promised is going to bless the whole world through, I am going to uh, ask you to obey it anyway. So he meant to obey God's command, even though it meant killing God's promise. Now, you hear this story, you have to ask the question, how could a man do such a thing? My only response is because Abraham believed that somehow, some way, God could bring somebody back from being dead. And you know, for 2,000 years, Christians have seen in this story the picture of the death and resurrection of Jesus. We could talk about Easter Sunday again today because this is, this is what happened with Abraham and Isaac happened 2,000 years later. See, in Genesis 22, we see what a man would do for the love of God. But in the New Testament, on Calvary, we see what God would do for the love of man. Abraham was only asked to sacrifice Isaac. God actually sacrificed his only son on that cross. And more than that, Jesus endured all kinds of physical death and spiritual death to redeem you and I, broken people, sinners. And when God's hand was raised up on uh, at Calvary, there was no one to cry out, Stop! Maybe we can find somebody to take my son's place. That never happened. There was no ram in the thicket on the day that Jesus was crucified for our sins. So God's hand fell in judgment on his own son. And you kind of know the rest of the story. I hope you do. Jesus died for your sins. Abraham offered his son. The father offered his son. Isaac carried the wood. Jesus carried his own cross. Isaac was laid out on that altar. Jesus was spread out on that cross. Abraham was willing to put his own son to death. The father willed that his son should die. The ram was offered in the place of Isaac and Jesus was offered in your place, in my place, in all of our places. Abraham received his son back figuratively, 
So did God literally when Jesus literally rose from the grave. So what are we supposed to take away from this story? There ought to be a takeaway somewhere in here. You know, when I read Genesis 22, when I selected this text, you know, months back and preparing the next series, I'm always struck by something that God said to Abraham after the great trial was all over. When after the ram had been sacrificed, Isaac spared and the promise reaffirmed. It kind of comes as part of a happy ending to a really big trial. God commends Abraham by saying, You have not withheld from me your son, your only son. I asked for your most precious possession, and you gave it to me. That's one reason I chose this song and wanted it ahead of this message. I mean, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. I mean, can we actually say that and mean that? Take my life, Lord, and let it be. May my life be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. You go, take my silver. I was thinking, as a pastor, I always wanted to do this. When we got to the verse, it says, take my silver and my gold, not a mite what I would hold. I said, stop. Ushers, pass the plates. (laughs) Would we literally want to do that? Well... Seen in this light, our, our text is pretty simple to explain, but it takes a lifetime to learn. It takes a lifetime to learn how to give up your Isaac. And I dare say that God leads most of us to Mount Moriah at one time or another, and sometimes regularly, to sacrifice the idols in our life. But here's the tricky part. We tend to associate idols with uh, heathen statues made out of gold or silver or wood or stone. And if that's all an idol is... We're probably pretty much in the clear because I don't know that any of us who are here today bow down to some weird statue and offer pig blood and chicken guts as a sacrifice. Uh, Why would we want to do something goofy like that? But see, an idol does not need to be a statue. An idol can be anything in our life that we hold on to tighter than we hang on to the Lord. Could your spouse be your idol? Yeah, could be. Could your children be your idol? Yeah. Could your money be your idol? Yes. I'll make it personal. Could your ministry be your idol? Yeah. Could your career be your idol? Yeah. See, is there anything wrong with being married? No. Is there anything wrong with having a family? Is there anything wrong with raising your children? You all even got the little ones down here. Is there anything wrong with having some money? Is there anything wrong with having getting an education or having a ministry or making your way in this world or having anything else to show for it? The answer is no. It's all good. But, and there's always a but, isn't there? Anything good can become an idol. And that's really the challenge in this story. Abraham had to come to the place where he willingly gave God back to God what was always God's in the first place. In other words, hold lightly to what you value greatly. Hold lightly because it doesn't belong to you anyway. Someone says, you know, at the end of of your life, what happens? It all goes back in the box and it's gone. We come into this life with nothing. I can guarantee you, I just saw a picture this morning on my Facebook page of a newborn baby of a friend of mine. That baby had nothing on when he was born. And believe me, I could see the picture and know it was a he. They didn't have to tell me. 
he had nothing on. And guess what? There will be a day when it comes, we will leave nothing. Everything we have is going to be left to someone else. And in between that time, guess what? God fills our hands with all kinds of good things. And then he asks us if we'd be willing to give those things back to him so that we can walk in a closer fellowship with him. Now, I have found in my own life that the process of letting go is a lifetime thing. I'm probably older than anybody else in this room. I'm pretty sure I am. I spent a long time letting go of some stuff that suddenly became a little bit too important in my life. But most of us, for most of us, there isn't simply one crisis moment, but rather kind of a continuous learning to say, Lord, take my life or whatever you want to plug in there and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. And when I have the courage to open my mind to let it go in the evening, you know what happens? I take it all back in the morning when I wake up and I try to grab onto it one more time. And it's something we need to learn over and over again. But see, it's God's kindness that keeps dragging us back to Moriah, back to the place of sacrifice where we offer to God our dearest and our best and say, Lord, it all belongs to you. See, God knows better than we do that as long as we hang on to certain things, good things, they can become idols and any idol, especially those things that are not wrong in themselves, the gifts that God has given us become too important to us and they start coming in between us and the God who loves us supremely and only wants the best for us. See, when we finally have the courage to let go, and I'll be honest with you, you're going to let, if you get in that process, you're going to let go every day, hour by hour, minute by minute. When we stop desperately trying to hold on to things, when we kind of open our hands and say, Lord, take my life and let it be. Take my silver and my gold. Take my children, take my wife, take it all. Take this ministry. It's yours to begin with. Don't let me cling on to it and claim it as my own. So we give to God what already belongs to him. I would suggest that then and only then are we really free. Now, I thought about saying then and only then would we be happy, but that wouldn't be right. Yielding up is often painful. Giving things up is painful. And sometimes we don't feel very good about it. So happy is not the right word. Free would be the right word. It's how wonderful to enter into the situation as Christ follows where we can say, Lord, I have no idea how this will all work out. All I know is it all belongs to you. Do with it whatever you want. I've been praying that prayer all week long. And I say this prayer. Oh, I have no idea how many times I've said this prayer since I wrote this message. But what I, had, what I actually wrote was, do with it as you will. What I had written in my notes is, do with restore whatever you want to do with it. Do with restore whatever you want to do with it. Keep my hands off of it. Lord, you do the things through these people that you, you want, not what we think is the very best thing. I think it's pretty pretty wonderful to enter to the, I guess I call it the ministry of liberty. Uh, Lord, I have no idea how all this will work out. All I know is it belongs to you. Take it. Use it. See, it was Jesus who actually said, I guess I could put one more Bible passage on the screen. I don't think this was up here, but it's from Mark 8:36. Jesus said, what would it benefit you to gain the whole world? Oh, there it is. 
Thank you, Anthony. You're a good man. And lose your own soul. So here's the deal in this whole sermon. You can keep what the world gives you for a moment, but you'll have to give it up in the end. Or you can keep your soul by letting go of the things that were never yours in the first place. It's kind of called like, let's make a deal. Do you want what's behind door one or do you want behind door two? That's the way it goes. So, friends, I'm going to end this message by asking you a simple question. What is your Isaac? And maybe one last question. And are you willing to lay it down for Jesus' sake? God bless.